Hey everybody, welcome to the Jen Carroll Podcast. Let's get started. On August 23rd, D'Angelo was back in court. This was not expected. We were planning to be there on September 5th for another probably continuance hearing. But instead, all of the district attorneys had gotten together over the course of the summer. They had thought they'd have the answer by June 30th, but instead they got together over the course of the summer and decided the jurisdiction for the case and had a press conference on the 21st or 22nd. And they just, they announced that the jurisdiction for his trial would be in Sacramento whenever that trial was ready to start. It also means the preliminary hearing will be, or continuation hearing, I forget what they call it, but the preliminary hearing will also be in Sacramento. This is a big deal because I don't think any of us expected this to be in Sacramento. It is the place where there are the fewest amount of actual live charges although that also has been modified. Originally, we were looking at the rapes, which had met the statute of limitations and so couldn't be prosecuted. But in fact, when these guys got together and looked at the charges and looked at the crimes and then decided on the charges, they've gone through and added a bunch of kidnapping charges. So let me slow down and take you through where we really are. And this this blog is about the court date on August 23rd. It's interesting because in just a few days, the names of the 9-11 victims will be read again in New York. And I, it's something I've never really been able to listen to. I think of the lives when I hear those names, which is of course the intention, but it tears me up. I cannot imagine these people got up that morning, went to work, did what they were supposed to do all because, and and thinking they're going to come home for dinner that night, like no big deal. I think it was a Monday if I remember, but it was, you know, just a regular day. I know I'd gotten up that morning and finally got a frantic call from my mother really early, but Katie was little and she was supposed to go to preschool. And I sat there thinking, does it make any sense to take her to preschool? Should I keep her home? What am I supposed to do? But I also knew what was going to happen in the house that day. I was not going to be in any shape to be a parent. And I thought, well, maybe school would be good because she'll just go play and there'll be butterflies and rainbows and all the things you're supposed to have at preschool. Well, we adults figure this crap out. It's so hard when I think about the reading of those names, those 9-11 victims, because I know it's real and I know those people died and they were supposed to come home that night and have dinner and play with the kids and give everybody a bath and do all the things you're normally supposed to do when you come home from work. It's interesting, but when I heard the charges read in the courtroom, I couldn't help thinking of the 9-11 names being read because there is something so god-awful about hearing this list of just names, lives that have been changed just with a single act of perpetrated by another human being, let's face it, both 9-11 and this trial. What humans are able to do to one another I still think is one of life's greatest mysteries. Why is it that humans can hurt each other in this way? We're supposed to be evolved. You'd think we would have known what was going to happen in court that Thursday, Uh, but we didn't because it wasn't supposed to be that day. It was supposed to be on the 5th and we were supposed to be there. And so uh, for the thing on the 5th, and those have been kind of crapshoots, but as it turned out with this bump and with the guys, with the district attorneys, the men and the women district attorneys who had figured out that the jurisdiction would be Sacramento, then everything changed. And what they decided for August 23rd is that they would read these counts and the charges. We're all there on our corner. We always meet on the corner. And this time uh, we had beefed up the crowd a bit. I was really happy. Had it been on the 5th, we were supposed to go to Carol Daly's house afterwards for a little barbecue. It's a nice way for us to have a chance to talk because we have to really be on good behavior at the courtroom. Well, generally good behavior. 
well, for the most part, we have good behavior. Anyway, we look forward to those after events because it gives us a chance to get to know each other better, talk, uh, compare notes, um, ask each other questions because everybody has, uh, ev well, not everybody, but a bunch of us have some different district attorneys or have some different points of contact for information. So us being able to share that information with each other is really powerful. But that's not what was going down. I think people still, there were some people that still got together on the 23rd on August 23rd, but I wasn't part of that because I got pulled out into another thing because of Ventura. And so I didn't, and I also wanted to get home to Santa Cruz because I had surgery the next day. So I came home and missed the gang afterwards, but it was still um, really encouraging to see that the group is continuing to grow with every court date. If you were to, <laughs> if you were to, um, totally stalk us and wanted to see what was going on. You could completely see us hanging out and waiting for victim services to come get us. Now, I hope to God it's not raining in December, although it could be in Sacramento or one of those really, really freaking cold mornings. Okay, for everybody else, we don't have snow, but it's cold. It's cold when you're used to 70 degrees. 50 degrees is cold. 40 degrees is colder. And so we've got to figure that out for our corner as we move forward. But at this point, we're still meeting out on the corner and we greet one another and Margaret always looks fabulous. And there's a couple other women that always look fabulous. They, I can't believe how these women can pull it together. I'm lucky if I'm clothed. But we um, get to see one another talk for a few minutes and then victim services show up and they walk us over to uh, the courtroom because it, the courtroom is still in the jail. I'm hoping that's going to change soon and that we'll actually be in a real courtroom. But right now, I guess if we're going to have a full day of trial. What we haven't had is these are just little blips. So I, I can understand where they're doing them at the courtroom courthouse or the jail courthouse, but that's what they're doing. So when we they bring us over to the jail, which is essentially where we're going, we have to go through the lie detector. And every time there's more of us, it takes a little more time. And, and we're and uh, yeah, we're squirrely and um, everybody's a little bit nervous and people that haven't seen D'Angela before are probably the most nervous. And so there's some, um, you know, anxiety. So the laughter and the carrying on is, I always think, really good way to deal with the anxiety so that it's not piling up in your brain. And so we go through the metal detector. And this time they did something different with us. They actually let us into, when you go through the metal detector in the jail, you can go one of two ways. You can go straight ahead into the main jail, which is right in front of you. And you have to go through another check. They make sure you're not taking in anything you shouldn't be taking with you. But normally we just go to the right, which is where all the cameras and media are set up. And they have like that weird sunroom window, which you can see on the blog, on my blog, but essentially we come out into that and have to deal with the media and, and we huddle together and have our own squad while protecting each other from people who don't want to be on camera. This time though, they took us inside the next opening into the jail area where there was a nice, I'll call it an atrium for lack of a, a better word, but it's a, it was an area with couches, um, seats, not couches, but benches and places you could relax. And since there was a bigger crowd of us, we were all together and we could talk to one another and see each other and kind of have the freedom to move around. Then they took us into the first courtroom, which I am going to deduce much must be department 60, since we're always in 61. And that is the courtroom where I have pictures on my blog because thank God I love these people. I love these people. I love our bailiff and I wish I could remember her name because it's the most unusual name, but I'm also not supposed to out these people. So it's probably good that I can't, but she has a great name and her husband works there too. She goes that he's got the same name as me. It was really cute because they work together. But if you, if you are on the blog or you take a look at my blog and see these pictures, we were in this courtroom and it's don't tell Judge Sweet, but it was cleaner than his courtroom. And I'll, okay, clean's a wrong word. They're probably both similarly clean. It was more organized than Judge Sweet's courtroom. I still love Judge Sweet, but yeah, 
he needs a little bit more organization. And this court, they let us like run amok in there. The only rules were don't take pictures of the bailiffs. So we didn't. And I, there were a lot of bailiffs that day. And I didn't put this in the blog, but I found out later all those bailiffs were there to protect all the district attorneys. It was a big deal that day. And I had no idea, but we didn't know all the district attorneys were going to be there either. So they let us play in this courtroom, which was cool because we got to go up and touch the cage. We got to move around. We got to snoop all those things because we've sat so well behaved in the, in the gallery of the courtroom. Um, every other time. It was really nice to be able to run around and touch things and look at them, see the signs that the prisoners see. Somebody had emailed me, oh, this is why D'Angela never talks. There's a sign in the cage that says, do not talk. You look forward, look at the judge, or I think they're allowed to look at their lawyer. But essentially, D'Angelo always comes in, the little mouth breather, staring at the judge and then walks right out. So yes, he's not allowed to look at us. He's not allowed to talk to us, nothing. It'll be different when we're in a real courtroom and the whole day goes by. I don't think the rules are the same then. But right now, while he is in this uh, this situation and we're still pre-trial, that is, that, thems are the rules. So if you look on the blog, you'll see pictures of the courtroom. Uh, a few of us, you don't have these pictures because I don't, I don't send pictures out of the survivors. But a couple of us pretended like we were in the cage because um, we're five. I, we couldn't resist. What are you going to do? It's right there. And I wanted to touch it. And if you see those steel bars, they are really strong. It's, it's, it looks substantial when you're looking at it, but when you go up and feel it, whew, it's intimidating. And what I thought was just wood paneling. No, no, no. That's all built in. This thing is, these cages are fierce. And you can see that brown door in the back that goes out to the area where the elevators are that go up into the jail. And maybe someday I can get that bailiff to show me around on an unofficial day because I'd love to know what it looks like in that little corridor. Because that door, the courtroom 60 is, if you were facing the, the courthouse or the jail from the street, court uh, department 60 is on the right and our courtroom, I mean on the left, and our courtroom is on the right. So that, if you imagine those brown doors, the elevator, that's a hallway. And so it could open into courtroom 60 or it could open into courtroom 61 from that little hallway that's in there with the elevator. I'd love to get a picture of that. They might let me take a picture of that someday. They're very, very nice to us because we know we shouldn't be brats always. So I, I try not to be too bratty, but it was good to get the pictures of the, of the cage and be able to see everything and what these courtrooms look like. I just really appreciated that access. Then all of a sudden it was time to round us up because things were, we were getting closer to the time and they walked us in through the back into department 61. Instead of normally out in the hallway, we come through the press and we usually come in the door like you're supposed to into the gallery. This time we came in from the same way that the judge enters the courtroom and the staff enter the courtroom, the lawyers. We came into a room that was somewhat already assembled. I suspect maybe the district attorneys were in there talking for a few minutes before everybody came in because all of a sudden I thought, oh my God, that's Gregory Totten. Like, and then I looked, I'm like, wait, all the district attorneys are here because I had just seen them on the press conference the two days before. And I thought, my God, what are we doing? Like, uh, wow, this is a big deal. You know, when you work at a municipality, you typically don't just get to travel. It's a big deal to travel. That's expensive and you're using taxpayer dollars. So I was really surprised to see them all there, but it gave the, the, gave the day a bit of weightiness. Like you knew that something serious was going to happen. So we were, we were in good shape. I love the idea. I have mentioned the blog and it totally comes from Seinfeld. But I feel like the bigger our group is, the more survivors we can get to come, the more friends of survivors. This time I brought a friend finally because I thought, why why am I not bringing a friend? Everybody else has support. Just because my folks aren't with me, I have friends in Sacramento. So I brought a friend. 
I think when I, when I borrowed from Seinfeld was the idea of having upper hand. We've got to have upper hand. And I want D'Angelo to know that we have hand. We are in charge. The survivors are here and he is no longer in charge. In fact, he's so not in charge that he looks like a skinny old man who can no longer have beer and treats. He is, uh, he has lost a lot of weight. So I liked the idea of having hand, uh, having the upper hand. And I think it'll be really awesome now that we go into this trial, having the trial in Sacramento, which if you haven't read why I'm so excited, we're going to have it in Sacramento, go read it. But it's, um, it, it is really important to me that we're there in a community. I think the Barnes and Noble event, the signing of Michelle McNamara's book, it wasn't a signing, actually. It was just a, a an event. Um, the guys didn't sign. Honestly, I thought they were going to, but the, that's not the point. The point is the community came out and I was blown away. I am so glad I was in the room at Barnes and Noble early and that I got to talk to so many folks, some of whom I'm still talking to now, still on Twitter. Like Aaron and I, or there's some other folks on there, like I still talk with them because they're awesome. And I really feel that connection to that Sacramento community. So I think having the trial there will do, uh, will heal a whole community who was really victimized by the terror of the East Area Rapist. It also means that, you know, this will be interesting. It'll keep it more, um, it, it'll be more interesting to talk about because everybody has an experience and it'll really allow the community to come together. And then I also have found that the local reporting in Sacramento has been extremely good. So I think there's some real good outcomes for this. And maybe we'll just always have a, a, a pizza night on Thursdays in Sacramento when the trial starts and then anybody can come and we'll all just catch each other up on trials. Who knows? I don't know what's going to happen. It's crazy. When we, we all sat down and we were ready and when we saw the district attorneys, Gregory Totten jumped up right away. I was like, Mr. Totten, it's Jennifer. And he was so excited to see me. And he said, can I talk to you after? And I knew, uh, yeah, of course I was looking forward to talking to him. I have never met him. He looks to be, maybe he's my age. Maybe he's a little bit older because he said he started working on the case. Um, when he's, when his first job, when he got his first job, he started working on this case. He might be a gauche older than me, but I bet we're about the same age. Everybody looked good. Everybody was showing well. And then we took our seats. And that's when I really realized how many of us there were because we we filled some good rows. They let the media in. There were, there were of course, a lot of media. And it's so funny because uh, my friend Dia from 2020 or from ABC had brought uh, her uh, child with her and he was great. I, and I always talk to kids. I'm, you know, that idiot that always talks to kids. So I'm like, oh my God, you're here for a murder trial. At which point he gave me this look like, shh, be quiet. Oh my God. It was just anybody who's an adult who's been around another adult with a kid knows the look. The look is like, dummy up, dumb, dumb. I can't believe you just said that. But joke is on Dia because who knew we were going to be hearing every count of everything that D'Angelo did holy crap, I don't know that she would have brought him if she had realized really what we were in for. I don't think anybody did a good job of setting expectations for this day. But we did, we did dive into it. And the kid, the, the kid handled it great. Although I'm sure Dia and he had quite the conversation on their way uh, up to Reno after the, after the hearing. The court was called into session and the Honorable Judge Sweet came in and he's a no-nonsense guy, really like his style. He's kind, like you can tell the kindness comes off of him, but he also gets shit done. And he doesn't malinger, which has probably made it a little harder for me as my my reporting, trying to be a, like a pretend reporter. It's hard for me to keep up. It, uh, one of the survivors always says, oh, you're always taking your notes. And I am. I take notes when I'm in court. It helps me listen better. And it helps me pay attention to things that that matter. And also then I can go look at certain times and, and it, it just helps me manage how I'm taking in all the information so that I can share it with others, share it with my mom, share it with my kid. So the court was in session and 
good old Diane Howard was back. We haven't seen her in a little bit. God, she grosses me out. I'm sorry. I know she's probably a super nice person and I'm really glad she does this job because somebody has to do it. But I just wish she didn't have to be so gross with D'Angelo. I just don't know how she does it. She must not be a Sacramento local. She must be a transplant because if she had been around in the East Area Rapist, the only modification, the only behavior modification I would look for from her is not to be quite so obsequious and so disgustingly up on him all the time. She's so close. And since he's a mouth breather, I imagine his breath probably stinks because mouth breathers have dry mouths, right? So there's no saliva in there and it's got to smell. And now it's probably too much information and all of you have just gone to throw up. So I'm sorry, come back, come back. I didn't mean to gross you out totally, but but he grosses me out. All right, you're back. Okay, good. Sorry, didn't want to gross you out too much, but there's just certain things about D'Angelo that completely gross me out and how Diane Howard treats him, that, that gross motherly part. Yuck. Just stop doing that. Anyway, he's been in jail for over four months. If you look on my blog, there's a clock there ticking for how long he's been in jail. He has definitely lost weight. We've noticed it every time. I would say he's probably down about 40 pounds. As a professional weight loss expert in that I've lost probably 700 pounds in my life and gained half of them back because you know how weight loss works. I, I It looks like about 40 pounds. He's not quite that tall, but there's a lot gone on him now. And frankly, he looks like he's his old fighting weight, his old uh, crime committing weight, quite honestly, because he as heavy as he was when he started out on this, he would not have had much agility. I'm, I suspect he has the kind of agility when he's lean like this. I know he's 72 and he doesn't need to be agile now. I'm just saying he looks very lean and he looks different. I'm also disappointed because they've stopped cuffing him in the back, which, okay, I was going to say just which pisses me off. I did take great satisfaction of watching his wrists be tightly cuffed. I, I don't know. That was just the best for me. But now they're always cuffing him in the front and they're loose. And of course, they're more and more loose as he loses weights. I know you can adjust him, but I think that he looks more frail. I think part of his mind, you know what, is to look more frail and look more helpless such that that would be interesting to a jury or to create some sort of sympathy and compassion for him. And I feel like it's working already on the guards. And that I call bullshit. I just call bullshit. I, I, no, just start locking his damn hands up behind his back. That's what needs to be done. So when the court came into session, they introduced <laughs> my rants. My rants are over. When the court came into session, they introduced all the district attorneys, everybody else there of any importance, and the lawyers and everything. And then we got down to business. And the and the first thing that they talked about, which took a little bit of discussion, and I wondered when this was going to happen. I actually thought this kind of thing happened early on, but I guess it happens in conjunction with a reading of the charges is that they asked D'Angelo about, or they didn't ask him anything. I'm sorry. They asked, the court asked about the indigent defense, which is that who pays for the lawyer? So I had assumed they had already done this because Diane Howard was there and the public defender's office was already working on his behalf. I mean, they've been working on his behalf this whole time. And it seemed odd to me that they wouldn't have already worked this out knowing that he's going to need a defender from the beginning that would understand the strategy, but apparently not, because now they're going to go do the indigent, indigent study. Oh, you try to say that. And um, I'm waiting. You can go say it right now. Indigent study. Those are weird letters coming up against each other, but okay. They're going to go do that now and have the results for us on December 6th. So we'll find out. And in the meantime, I suspect if there was a high-powered defense attorney that's going to get 
their hands in this thing, that will possibly come up in the next four months as well. I, 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 there's been rumors that that could happen. I don't know why anybody would want to touch this with a 10-foot pole. I don't care how much publicity you could think you could get out of it. Although, as we know, it doesn't take much to get publicity. I mean, even the fact that people listen to me talk is a good is a good explainer on like, it doesn't take much to get publicity on this case. Although I love you all and I appreciate it. And you have no idea, but it really helps me that you guys are out there. I love it. Anyway, the indigent study will come through in December. So we'll find out about that. And we'll see if any drama crops up on the defense attorney out of the blue who decides to take this pro bono because they don't need to get paid. They just want to get the publicity. Or if he has to then dissolve his assets, which he does have some, and there are better people than I who know about this over on Reddit on the boards, but I believe that he has the house. He has some assets with a boat, a motorcycle, a car, some of those kinds of things. I think his children are all adults and hopefully are not counting on him for any sort of financial support at this point other than the regular emergency stuff adult kids need from their parents because you know life but um hopefully those kids are able to the girls are able to support each other the women are able to support each other and help each other through this and i'm sure sharon probably has money as well his ex-wife or wife separated wife uh, whatever. I, I can keep up with the nuances of this family. But I'm hoping to goodness that the his daughters are taken care of. And I think they are. We haven't heard much, but I'm, I think they're all grown up and have at least um, a foray into their careers. The one is a doctor, right? So that uh, that would be good because I'd hate to see them lose anything that they were counting on as a result of his beha- bad behavior. Once again, more victims, just more victims. Then, as we know, the, this thing, this whole, the first arrest happened with the Maggiore. They used the Maggiore murders to bind him over and then Charlene's DNA to prove that there was a relationship between him and these crimes. But we, I didn't realize, and we finally were going to get to the list and the reading of the crimes. Now, a brief aside here, because I live with a book which is was written by Cat Winters and Keith Como's, which is the you know the Golden State Killer book, that East Area Rapist book that has all of the cases in there, all of the crimes in there. I always call it my Beanie Baby Handbook because. Even as I meet victims, as you might imagine, you meet a victim and then you'll hear a number like I'm 22 or I'm 14 or I'm number 39 or whatever. And I don't know what that means because I was so focused on what was happening in Southern California. I mean, if you talk, think about it, it's like Shelly, Debbie and I were like Southern California murder people and we had Larry Poole. Y'all had Paul Holes in Northern California, but down South we had Larry Poole, who is probably a fairly unsung hero in all of this. And still my guy. My Paul Holes is Larry. I love that man. So we kind of see this differently and, and we didn't have as much exposure to the Northern California crimes until until Debbie met up with Margaret and others. And then it had, you know, then it had its own life, but I still wasn't with that squad yet. So for me, I need a book that can help me understand what happened. And I prefer a book that is as accurate as possible and accessible in a handbook kind of way, if you think about it. And that's why I call it the Beanie Baby Handbook, because you've got to know, you you got to go find out what's happening with each of the cases and the way that they structured the book. It's a parallel structure. So you have the same breakdown for each crime, the same, if they have the information that applies, like what happened the days before, what happened then, what, what weapons were used, uh, what was the time of day, all those kinds of things that people not like me can use to kind of provide a systematic look at what happened with these crimes. That's what Kat and Keith have done. Unfortunately, their book is backordered right now. And I think we're going to change where it's sold from. Uh, so I'm working with them because I think this book is so essential. But I'll also eventually just talk with them. I'm going to eventually, I think, try to sell that book 
off of my website because then at least it can be faster and people can get their hands on it. Stand by for that. That is a really great book. I cannot say enough about it. I'm so impressed that they spent all this time and energy researching the book and working on it basically as a labor of love. And I found out that the money they made, they gave to CrimeCon. I mean, yeah, CrimeCon, right? Yeah, CrimeCon. These folks are good people and they are doing good things with the money. And not only do I want you to support, get the book because I think it's a really good book, but I also think that they are worthy of the support. So that is the information's in my blog. If you want to know about that, I'm going to get an image up soon and just start booking back orders for them. If you have any questions, email me always. You can just get me jennifer at jcarol.com and I'll let you know what's going on. And then now we're going to do the hardest part of this podcast because I want to try as best as I can, although it will be nothing like what happened in court. But I want to read the counts, and this will be a little tedious. And if you can't stand it, just listen, and uh, now's a good time to turn on the garbage disposal. And if you can listen to it, um, good for you, because this is what it felt like. It took about 30 minutes, and it was going pretty fast. If you look at my notes, I started to use shorthand because I couldn't write the word firearm every time I was taking too long of notes, but it was powerful. It was, there was this feeling, it just of, of hearing people's names of people you love being read as a crime. I haven't experienced this in any other way. Thank God any crimes I've been involved with have been misdemeanors or stupid things that didn't involve courts because, you know, courts are complicated and expensive. So I haven't ever sat through anything like this and it, it got my attention. And it, it took my breath away. And I'm glad I was able to take notes because that actually gave me a focus. Otherwise, I might have just sat there crying like a fool. Here we go. Count one, the murder of Claude Snelling on September 11th, 1975 in Visalia using a 38 revolver. Count two, murder of Kate Maggiore of Rancho Cordova, February 2nd, 1978, using a gun of unknown caliber. Count three, murder of Brian Maggiore of Rancho Cordova, February 2nd, 1978, using a gun of unknown caliber. Count four, murder of Deborah Alexandra Manning, Santa Barbara, December 30, 1979, using a gun of unknown caliber and special circumstances because it included rape and burglary. Count five, Murder of Robert Offerman of Santa Barbara County, December 30, 1979, using a gun of unknown caliber and special circumstances because it includes burglary. Count six, murder of Sherry Domingo of Santa Barbara County, July 27, 1981, using a gun of unknown caliber and special circumstances because it included rape and burglary. Count seven, Murder of Greg Sanchez of Santa Barbara County, July 27, 1981, using a gun of unknown caliber and special circumstances because it included burglary. Count eight. Murder of Charlene Smith of Ventura County, found March 16, 1980, and special circumstances because it included rape and burglary. Count nine. Murder of Lyman Smith of Ventura County found March 16th, 1980, and special circumstances because it included burglary. Count 10, murder of Patrice Harrington of Orange County, August 21, 1975, and special circumstances because it included rape and burglary. Count 11, 
murder of Keith Harrington of Orange County, August 21, 1975, with special circumstances because it included burglary. Count 12, murder of Manuela Withun of Irvine, found February 5, 1981, includes special circumstances because of rape, robbery, and burglary. Count 13, murder of Janelle Cruz of Irvine, killed May 4, 1986, includes special circumstances because it included rape and burglary. Count 14, Jane Doe 1 of Sacramento, on September 6, 1976, the charge robbery. Count 15, Jane Doe 2 of Sacramento on April 2, 1977. Kidnap and use of firearm during the commission of a crime. Count 16, Jane Doe 3 of Sacramento on April 15, 1977. Kidnap, robbery, and use of a firearm during the commission of a crime. Count 17, Jane Doe 4 of Sacramento, May 3, 1977. Kidnap, robbery, and use of a knife and firearm during the commission of a crime. Count 18, Jane Doe 5 of Sacramento on May 14, 1977. Kidnap, robbery, and use of a knife and firearm during the commission of a crime. Count 19, Jane Doe 6 of Sacramento on May 17, 1977. Kidnap, robbery, and use of a knife and firearm during the commission of a crime. Count 20. Jane Doe 7 of Sacramento on May 28, 1977. Kidnap, robbery, and use of a knife and firearm during the commission of a crime. Count 21. Jane Doe 8 of Sacramento on October 1, 1977. Kidnap, robbery, and use of a knife and firearm during the commission of a crime. Count 22. Jane Doe 9 of Sacramento on October 2, 1977. Kidnap and use of a knife and firearm during the commission of a crime. Count 23, Jane Doe 10 of Contra Costa County on October 7, 1978. Kidnap, robbery, and use of a knife and firearm during the commission of a crime. Count 24, Jane Doe 11 of Contra Costa County on October 13, 1978. Kidnap, robbery, and use of a knife during the commission of a crime. Count 25, Jane Doe 12 of Contra Costa County on October 28, 1978. Kidnap, robbery, and use of a knife and a firearm during the commission of a crime. And count 26, Jane Doe 13 of Contra Costa County on June 11, 1979. Kidnap, robbery, and use of a firearm during the commission of a crime. And as you know, the rape and other burglaries, well, the rapes in particular cannot be charged because of the statute of limitations and when he was arrested. It was rough to hear this list. It was really rough. And I've heard some of the survivors talk about now I have a new number. That's kind of crappy. But maybe one of the things that I didn't really blog about, or maybe I blogged about a little bit, but it's definitely come up since, is that these new kidnapping charges mean some people 
who weren't planning on testifying, sure, they could give a victim impact statement, but that's a little different, but who were not planning to testify in court, now will have to testify. And that has uh, caused some feelings, as you might imagine, not not planning to testify and suddenly finding out you're going to have to testify. So some folks have definitely had their their individual cages rattled as they're coming to terms with this. I don't know that they have to have somebody testify in all cases, but I, I suppose they do. I've been talking with some of the survivors offline about this because it, it is stressful to think about. It's so far away, but it is stressful to think about. But I think it's really important that people do testify. It's just that a lot of folks, or not a lot, but some of these folks have not told everybody. Like They're not like me with the big mouth telling everybody about their personal life. They've kept it private and they've wanted it to be private. Of course, that's always the challenge with rape victims, right? They're victimized the first time and then again and to have your life, because this is what could potentially be brought up, to have your life be questioned, your choices be questioned as a woman, to have the clothes that you wear, to have the things that you do, the people you choose to associate with be considered as part of your character and how you're evaluated and yet you were the victim. That, frankly, is the bullshit of rape culture. And that is what is, is scaring these women. Let's face it. It's not, it's still not safe. Sorry, I just flashed right now to Serena Williams, but it's still not safe. The sexism still exists. We're seeing it every day. And to get up on a stand in one of these kind of cases, once again, it brings your personal choices under the, under the hot, white, hot light of scrutiny. And nobody deserves that, especially not a victim. To my CEO who walked in and said, oh, you're famous. And I wanted to punch him in the face. This is not fame. This is not fame. Fame is something you seek. Fame is something you want and you are prepared for. And it's typically around something that is important to you and that you value. It is not. You do not become famous from being a victim unless you choose to turn on it and take that attention and then embrace it and use it as fame. Oh, like Paul Holes is a good example of fame. He's not a victim, but he's a good example now of shifting to fame. That is such a good example. He was a fierce law enforcement professional who played by all the rules while he was uh, active duty. He is retired now. The gloves are off. And while he does have to be careful about ex open cases and what he says, he is now making the move into fame. That's so different than having to testify at a trial or even what I'm doing. It's so different than even just telling your story. I'm choosing to tell it because I've I found that I get a lot of value from it in terms of how my personal growth is working. Plus people have told me it matters to them. So you know what? For all of us playing together, Yay, we're playing together, but I'm not having to, I'm not having to say anything I don't want to say. That's for damn sure. In a trial and testimony, you have to say some things that you don't want to say, and they bring witnesses out against you who say stuff about you. And that brings us back to some of the crap that's even in Michelle McNamara's book, right? Because people want to talk about their friends or the people that they know, only they don't realize what they're saying will be memorialized forever. In fact, for me, just reading the latest Oxygen article about the Golden State Killer, I thought, still nobody's calling me to verify information. Fact check that stuff. They're still not calling. And essentially, we're in a place where now people are repeating things that they've seen in print. Just because it's printed doesn't make it true. I am happy with anybody lifting stuff from my blogs. Those are true. Those are from me. But just because people say things doesn't make it true. And just because you read it in print, <laughs> what is that joke? There's a meme around like, oh, but it was on the internet. Yeah, it doesn't make it true. So I feel really bad for the people that have to testify that weren't planning on it. But I hope it'll be healing and 
I'm there for them and we'll get through it. We're going to get through this. We're going to get through this. But that, of course, leads me to my big conclusion, which is I wish D'Angelo would just take a plea. I hope it comes back that he can't get indig indigent defense. He doesn't need defending. He did it. <laughs> he did it. He did it. He did it. He did it. What do we got to do? He did it. We know we have the DNA. He did it. If he would take a plea, it would be easier on his family. It would be easier on all of us. And my God, he's 72. Now go have a Coke and a smile, Mr. D'Angelo. You are headed straight to Gen Pop and we'll trade you the death penalty because God knows you're probably going to croak way before we could ever kill you. Anyway, people have been on death row for a hundred years. Let's not even play that game. Let's not waste the taxpayer's money. Let's not do any of that crap. I don't want you living with the privileges of death row. I want you in Gen Pop where you have three other guys in your cell and maybe a fifth because, you know, they're consolidating and being efficient, you should be there, Mr. D'Angelo, and don't hurt your family anymore. Okay, get off my soapbox. All right. Then at the end of the day, I had already, the Fox 40 had reached out to me, I think the day before and said, are you coming? And will you be here? And can we talk to you? And I said, yeah, no problem. In fact, my mom was like, you can't go up there. And I go, I already committed to a new agency. Mom, I got to go. But she doesn't understand. I was going to go anyway. I committed to my friends that were going to be there. I wanted to be there. But I had made that plan. And then DA Tot needed to talk to me. So I had to lag behind. So that kind of got me out of sync with everybody else. And so surprise, I came out of the, I came out first into the large hallway in the jail and the reporters were being shooshed out. Shush, shush, shush. Gotta go get out of here, all of you. You're trouble, which we were, you know, because so much activity. So he walked outside and there is the most hilarious, to me, a hilarious picture on my blog of me in this sea of reporters because everybody else had kind of gone and I was standing there. And then what you can't see from the picture and God love whoever took this shot. Thank you. I just lifted off the internet. I've totally committed some sort of copyright infringement, I know, but I couldn't resist because I'm five foot one on a good day. I, you can't see it from this picture, but I am a munchkin in the middle of all those people. It just, I felt like I was in a little hole looking up at everybody except for one photographer who I want to shoot with that was um, taking pictures of me from the bottom up, which can we just all agree seeing someone's chins as the first thing in a photo is just not good. And I guess I said chins to those of you that have only the one chin. God love you. But some of us, some of us kind of on the other side of 40, we have more than one chin. Some of us on the other side of 40 pounds have more than one chin too, but you know, that's how it works out. So yeah, I was kind of frightened of the camera down below me, but everybody else, I have to say as a crowd, these reporters have been so friendly and patient and not obnoxious. There's a couple obnoxious ones, but I know who they are and whatever. This is their job. So I don't want to ever um, frustrate someone who's trying to do their job. But what, But they don't know I'm a total nerd. So at the end, the AP guy who in the picture is kind of the New York-y looking blonde guy where the boom is right in front of his head almost. We stayed and talked a little bit after because I he had a couple more questions and I'm always fascinated by journalism. And he, it was very, very cool to talk to him. And he's new to the area and this beat. He was working in politics before. Duh, now you know why I talked to him because he was working in politics before. But I it just cracks me up because this picture doesn't show exactly how little I felt in the sea of all those reporters. So that is so then after that I I was exhausted. I don't know why, but that day was hard. I think it was managing all kinds of emotions and then seeing everybody is always both exhilarating and then draining at the end because I well for me it's draining because I really care about everybody and I I really want to listen to them. So I'm trying really hard to be focused and stay and stay and be attentive and listen. So by the time I get to the car I'm like, "Okay, now I'm depleted." Like that was a lot. But the drive home to Santa Cruz was Santa Cruz wasn't too bad and of course um we all have our true crime podcast, so I was listening to 
podcast on the way home, which was really fun. It gave me time to think through things. Of course, I was getting into going into surgery the next day, so I would do anything to get home and be ready. And the surgery came out great. My knee, I got the little arthroscopic stuff on my knee. And that was two weeks ago. And I'm feeling a lot better. Actually, it's my other knee now that's acting out. But I think it's because it was carrying the load for so long. Ha, huh, that was a pun. It was carrying the load for a long time. That's what happened on the 23rd. I will be back soon with more. But I so appreciate you listening. You guys following me on Twitter. That's amazing. Thank you so much. Jay Carroll on Twitter. I love talking to people on Twitter. So please go there. It's fun. There's a bunch of great true crime fans there. And if you ever need help, where to find a podcast, where to find a book, where to find a resource, that's the crowd, man. Twitter has a great crowd of true crime followers. If you like the podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate it. And I'm out. Until next time.